Welcome to Media Storm, everybody. Today we have a special episode that we are recording from the Frida Studios. Helena, tell us why we're here. We're here because we have just recorded an episode of Little Revolutions with their wonderful host. But in Little Revolution style, <laughs> we're not going to introduce the host. We're going to allow her to introduce herself. And as you put it, how would you define yourself? Well, I don't like the tables being turned on me. Um, <laughs> my name is Ms. Mahuja. I'm a journalist. I have lived in lots of countries. I'm a multi-country person. Um, I'm a curious person, a person who likes a good story. Beautiful. And, and why were Little Revolutions the story that you decided you wanted to focus on? Because I, I'm a big believer in the stories we tell shape culture and shape our understanding of the world. And everywhere I look the problems that we want to tackle in the stories we tell and like our collective understanding feels so much bigger than any one of us. And we all have power. We're all capable of doing small things, if not doing big things. And very often I don't know where to start. So I did what any journalist does and I decided to report out the problem and talk to lots of people to understand how they were doing it. Would it be fair to characterize yourself as optimistic? To me, this seems like a very optimistic thing to do? I think it's realistic if you want to continue to exist in the world, right? If if we believe there isn't any hope for things to change, then what's the purpose of living? So I think it's realistic, mm-hmm. but I guess that's optimistic. Uh, yeah, I'm a big believer <laughs> that optimism is, is realism. <laughs> Can you tell us about some of the people who have been on Little Revolutions, some of the your favourite stories, your favourite guests, I mean, apart from us, obviously. <laughs> I could talk so much about how great you guys are. Um, <laughs> we've had a lot of really different types of people on here because everyone's experience is different. Um, some of the conversations that have stayed with me the most, one of them was with Mandu Reed, who is the leader of the Women's Equality Party. Um, and she and I talked a lot about the backlash that comes before big change often Mm -hmm. and how in this moment it's so easy to feel despondent, but actually that's a tool. Um, that's a tool to help, help us stop trying and help us stop being optimistic. But if there is backlash, it means someone is listening. And if there is backlash, it means that we have power and the backlash is a sign to keep going because before any big change, there's always backlash. And she talked about the end of apartheid, which she saw in her lifetime. Um, We talked about how wild it would be for a woman before she had the right to vote to imagine a world where she would be equal, where a woman would be leading countries um, Mm -hmm. and how we have to keep imagining. So it's a sort of two steps forward, one steps back. The arc of history bends toward justice kind of thing, right? Like in the large sweep. um, And if you look in the large sweep, we're moving forward, but also, yes, And do you see what you're doing with Little Revolutions as a little bit of a revolution in itself? I think a lot of what we're trying to do at Frida at large, um, and this is Little Revolutions is one part of it, is trying to shift things. And I guess that is a little revolution in some sense. We're being very thoughtful where I've been in the industry for about 15 years now and understand the mechanics of how it works and trying to be very intentional about how we move things forward, how we push the conversation forward um, and how we bring people along the journey with us. So I guess it is a revolution. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit more about Frida and what 
kind of work is done here besides Little Revolution? Yeah, so we are a social publisher. Um, we publish on Instagram, TikTok. I'm going to say lots of things now that aren't <laughs> correct, probably. YouTube, Facebook, and sometimes LinkedIn, um, and also our podcasts. And we started very much with, it started in Italy and then went to Spain and then came to the UK with English language and started with the premise of our mission being at the heart of what we do. So we never pretended to be unbiased or balanced. We have a bias. We have a perspective. Everyone does. Anyone who says otherwise is not a human. Um, and for us at the heart of it was we want to tell stories to, to shift things forward, to change the world. So telling stories, human stories that inspire young women to believe a free and equal world is possible is our mission statement. Um, and that we, we bring it into existence by living it together. So we're all in it together. The community is at the heart of it. And the easiest way to convince someone of something or get them to see something differently, um, kind of like what you do at MediaStorm is to let people tell, tell you their stories of their lived experiences because you can never argue with someone's life. Mm -hmm. You can argue with their opinion, but you can't argue with their life. Definitely. Yeah. Has living, you mentioned you lived in multiple different countries. Has living in multiple different countries shaped the way that you do interviews, that you think about community? I guess so. I, it's a weird one where I'm like, I've never had any other experience. So for me, it's the only way I know the world. But I think the reason I became a journalist was because I felt like a translator between cultures where I just wanted people to understand each other. And I felt like I often got more of the difference in media than the similarities. And I wanted to bring those together. And that's generally what I try to find in every story I tell as well. And before we move on to the next part of the show where we'll be playing some of our interview on Little Revolutions. Would you just tell everyone where they can follow you, where they can follow Frida and anything else that you have to plug? Um, you can follow Frida at Frida underscore EN on all the social platforms that I listed. You can follow me by looking up my full name and find Little Revolutions wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. In today's episode, I chat with Helena Wadia and Matilda Mallinson, the hosts of the podcast Media Storm. All three of us are journalists who have worked in big newsrooms and have left them to try and create something better, something that reflects the communities we serve, the world we grew up in, and people's lives. In this conversation, we dig into why it matters how stories are told and who the storytellers are, and the ways in which the stories we tell can shape our understanding of the world and make something better. Thank you both for being here. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. So nice. <laughs> so to get us started, we don't like to define people. We let people define themselves and introduce themselves how they would like to be known. So how would you both like to introduce yourselves? Shall I go first? You go first. Okay. I am Helena Audia. I have recently turned 30 years old. I'm saying recent. It's July. I'm saying it's recent. Um, I am a journalist uh, because I believe the news should be and could be and sometimes is a force for good. <laughs> uh, I'm co-host of Media Storm Podcast with my lovely co-host over here, Matilda, um, which is amazing because I love hearing people's stories and listening to people's stories and helping them tell their stories. Um, I am a fierce feminist and feel 
feel very deeply and passionately about social justice and very sensitively about it as well. And I am a big indie music fan. Love going to live music. That's my that's my life force. That's what makes me feel alive. <laughs> that's me. Thank you. I love also that you included more than just your work in there because you're a human. It's so hard, like just trying yeah. when people say, you know, it's always what do you do? And I'm trying not to let just what we do define us, you know. And that was so stressful when you were early twenties figuring out what you wanted to do, sometimes doing things that weren't quite right mm. for you, or as many people have to do jobs that aren't quite right for them. Yeah, when the when the upfront question is what do you do? It's not not necessarily the way you want to define also, yourself. Also we do more than like Helena listens to indie music, right? Like mm. we do more than the work we do. Mm. But Matilda, how do you want to define and introduce yourself? So I'm Matilda, Matilda Mallinson. <laughs> I'm yet to turn 30. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> also a journalist, but didn't grow up necessarily wanting to be a journalist. That was something I came into because I wanted to be useful. Mm. Um, also because I find it fun and fun is important to me. I haven't really thought about how I was going to define myself in advance. I am very impulsive, sometimes too much so. Mm. <laughs> um, but it works really well in a partnership like Helena's and mine. And I love to travel mostly because I love to be outside of my comfort zone and exposed to people with totally different worldviews mm. to mine that is the best therapy for me the thing that gives me the most perspective that grounds me and that can pull me out of any crappy mood as quickly as possible that is such a wonderful definition thank you <laughs> I'm going to steal parts of that for myself when I have to do this in the future. <laughs> You're welcome to. I'll credit you. It's fine. Um, <laughs> so you both started MediaStorm as journalists who wanted to change something, right? And like change seems to be also at the center of how you both define yourselves. And changing something also means knowing what came before and deciding it, it can be better, it can be improved, or it could be different. And I'm curious about what that journey was like for both of you of realizing this is not the space where I'm going to tell the kinds of stories I want to tell, whether they're my story or stories of other people who live very different lives from me. And what was that like for you? Mm. I think, I think for me, before I studied to become a journalist, I was working in TV and I was working on these TV, uh, I mean, documentaries in inverted commas. I'm not really sure what you'd call them, but um, they were I mean, they are documentaries, but they Did were. You hear the title? Yeah, the, the 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 kind of I was working as like a researcher and a production mm. assistant on shows that were like, "Help! I'm addicted to tanning," and like, "Help! My mom's hotter than me." Do you know what I right. mean? Like, I just I always wanted to be in that like TV broadcasting mm. world, but that, those were my kind of first jobs in the industry. Yeah. And as I was doing those jobs, that's when I sort of realized like. I want to be telling important stories. I want to be telling stories that create change, stories that, you know, help people that change the way that the world is and change the status quo, or at least try and help change the status quo. And then that's sort of when I found journalism. And a lot of my jobs before MediaStorm were fantastic. Like I had amazing 
experiences in the jobs. I worked in so many newsrooms that were great and met so many amazing people and, um, you know, worked in big, big newsrooms like the BBC and small newsrooms like London Live and local yeah. TV. And I had so many fun things to do, like reporting from the top of the O2 and all of that. And it was amazing. But I think there was always something in me that was struggling with being bound by these actually when you think about them quite arbitrary editorial standards these and each each newsroom I worked in you know had their own different ones and I think that's when I met Matilda working at a mainstream London newspaper Uh, we were both video journalists and we had the same sort of feeling and the same sort of ideas about how we should be approaching journalism yeah and I had come into journalism with a quite different approach Mm. I didn't grow up knowing that I wanted to be a journalist I grew up knowing only what I would didn't want to do and that list just grew and grew Mm. and then I worked in the refugee sector for some years And it was that that led me into journalism. And I went into journalism with a very specific idea of what was wrong and what I wanted to do differently. So I only went into journalism because I wanted to work out how I could be useful in what I decided was a real passion for me Mm -hmm. and a passion that could pull me through life. And that was the refugee crisis. And I was working on the front line. It was very frustrating work and it chips away at you because when you're working in camps or on the border providing emergency aid there's no long-term solution that you see anywhere and it's still the case I mean every time the government announces a new policy it's following the same falsified logic of deterrence and hostility that doesn't address the fact that we have a an explosive growth in global displacement, no infrastructure to deal with it. And so it it wears you down when you're providing that aid. I wanted to think about what service I could provide that might have a more long-term role. I thought about think tanks or law. If you look into it, the thinking has been done. There are great minds who've come up with these policy reforms to fix the, the problem. And they won't get through because of the political atmosphere in which we live as long as it is political suicide to implement any of these very effective policy reforms that may come with a net increase in immigration nothing's going to change and so that's about attitudes and communication and I came into journalism wanting to redress how we framed the immigration narrative And that meant that when I went through my journalism training, oh, I had such a niche idea about the role I wanted to play. I was quite immune to the very competitive environment in journalism training and journalism entry-level jobs. And when I met Helena working at this London paper, I was already quite frustrated by the fact that we were putting out so many articles about channel migrants. This was right at the start of that dinghy in the the dinghy arrivals on the channel. We would put out, I was counting 20, 30 articles in a fortnight and not a single one of those articles quoted a single refugee. So I expressed this frustration to Helena 
at a time when I was writing, I wanted to write to the editor about it. And she pointed out that this is a problem that is scalable. This is so true for refugees. And it should be so obvious because it's the first rule of journalism, right? That you talk to the people involved. But it's true for many other minoritized demographics that are often the focus of our headlines, be that people with disabilities or trans people, homeless people, sex workers, the list just grew and grew. And that was when we decided that there was a real project we could embark on to fill this gap. And that's how we set up Media Storm together. And at what point did you decide you know what, the system is so broken that we have to like get outside of, or like these places exist already and we can't change them from the inside. So we have to leave because so I've been on a similar journey. So many of us have. And the the thing we always are weighing is, can we change these behemoths from the inside where they are the ones that are actually shaping culture? Right? That's where most people get their news, get their understanding of the world we live in. Mm-hmm. Or do we go out and build something entirely new? And I'm curious about what what that moment was or like what those conversations look like. They're like, okay, this is bigger than fixing it in here. We have to leave. Mm. I mean, as Matilda said, you know, we did write to the editor and I'll let Matilda tell that story in a moment. But really, for me, that moment of being like, oh, I just, I'm not sure anything's really going to change from the inside it wasn't really a moment. It was a long, long build-up of so many years. I think as a woman, as a young woman, and then also as a young woman of colour in newsrooms, it's incredibly frustrating from the off. It, it, it's it, it's just exhausting, really. I mean, at, at one place I worked, there was one other Indian woman who worked there, and pretty much everyone else was white and we would get called each other's names just interchangeably. Also, she was significantly older than me. So I was like, kind of annoyed, <laughs> you know. I've been there. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, yeah, exactly. I'm sure you can relate. It was, it, there was a lot of that. There was also, I think, being young in a newsroom, you had, um, I mean, we still get this now. People call us like the girls or hey girls. Yeah, we, still get- we still get that now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We're sharing panels with, you know, some male journalists. And they're like, well, let's hand over to the girls. It's like, okay, we're not on like a girly trip. You know, we're not in Magaluf. Like, come on. Um, Yeah, maybe let's invite them to Magaluf. But it was, there was a lot of that. It was a, it was a long, slow buildup. It was the frustration of not getting the stories I wanted to tell through because at the very top of these newsrooms sit the same people, sit usually straight, white, middle-class men who, you know, are so often they're extremely talented. They're very good at their job. But I think a lot of the time the frustration I was feeling was, oh, I have this story, I have this story. And because it may be about um, an issue that affected women more or maybe an issue that affected women of colour more, they would kind of go, oh, well, it's not really relevant. It's not really relevant. And I'd be thinking, well, yeah, it's not, maybe it's not relevant to you, but it is relevant to, you know, a significant mass population <laughs> of the UK. Um, so I think that that was really my frustration and that was the moment that you know I thought this isn't going to work and and when I resigned from my job you know 
I resigned like still mid pandemic from a full time job. That was a big, big risk. And also, you know, trying to explain that move to my Asian parents, like I went through something. Okay. So that was a big, big move, but yeah, it was, it was worth it. That was it for me really. And I'm curious because I've been in your shoes in those same newsrooms and my journey ended up here, Mm. but it took me a while. And it sounds like you had a lot more like of what I didn't have, where I was just convinced that everything I said didn't matter for a while. Cause it was like, Oh, when you keep hearing that's not relevant or that's not really the right idea. I was like, Oh, I really need to change how I think about things. Cause I have all the wrong ideas. Right. And I turned and looked around and all my friends who were women or men of color or young women were getting the same thing. I was, I was like, Oh, we all just seem to have really shit ideas. <laughs> yeah. That seems like the one pattern I have found here, but I'm yeah. curious about how you kept believing that like what you had to say mattered. Honestly, because I I definitely felt that way earlier on in the career when it was first happening. But honestly, what, what sort of changed that was when stories that I had pitched to editors maybe three weeks before then ended up on the front page of other mm. publications three weeks later. And that was really what kept, you know, me thinking, okay, no, I'm on the right track. Like, I know this is important. I know people need to hear about this maybe this is not the right space to do it, but like, I'm not being an idiot. Like I know, I know what, what is good and what needs to be spoken about. That was it. And what about for you, Matilda? What was that journey of like getting the call from Helena and saying, okay, cool. I'm, I'm out too. What, what was that journey like for you? Where it was not that there was one breaking point necessarily for you, but. Yeah, I think it's such a good question because it's a question I have been asking myself and debating with my dad all through my childhood is, can you change things within the system or do you have to change things outside the system? And the conclusion I have come to from years of thinking about that and studying history as well, like I'm a bit of a nerd, is that you need both. You know, we always needed the suffragettes and the suffragists, even though they would both say the other one was doing it wrong. We needed the black power and the Martin Luther King, even though each side thinks the other is doing it wrong. You just, you need both. Can you do both? I don't know, but working out which one you're better suited to is maybe the best thing that you can do. And all little revolutions are valid in my mind in that sense. So I had the opportunity to try from inside. Getting into a mainstream news outlet, we all know is really difficult. And so getting that opportunity felt like a real privilege and a real opportunity to try to do that from the inside. So we wrote to the editor. I had a very detailed list of not just why I thought it was wrong for them to not include refugee voices, but the outcomes of that, the factual inaccuracies that resulted from that, the side of the story that was missing. And I was invited to sit down with some of the news reporters and point some of these issues out. I got to commission an opinion piece from someone with lived experience of displacement that they published in the paper. This was really exciting. They said, oh, you know, the problem is it's so hard to get a refugee source to speak in our under our time pressure. So I said, okay, I'll come up with a solution for you. My then partner at the time, who was a refugee himself, and I set up an organization 
called Refugee Media Center. We collected a network of spokespeople with lived experience of displacement, and we lobbied for journalists to come to us and we could provide them with that connection, that source. And we were juggling this on top of our other jobs. Anyway, some weeks later, it just fell back to old habits. Even now, I'll still do work via Refugee Media Center. Journalists will come to me. I've had BBC Newsnight just a couple times this week. But the priority, the thing that they're looking for now in the refugee source isn't someone who is an expert because of their lived experience. It's someone who can share some really traumatizing anecdote. Yeah. So they will say, oh, we need someone. Can you give us someone to go live on air on Wednesday to talk about their crossing in a dinghy? I said, look, most of the people who've come over in dinghies, their asylum claims are still being processed because we're that behind. But also with all the threats of Rwanda, they don't want to make themselves that visible because of the fact that they came over on a means of transport that has now been criminalized. So I can give you someone who has been displaced, who has had to make the same choices, who can speak to that experience, but they don't want that. They just want to put someone in a chair and question them about trafficking gangs. So even when you do their job for them, and that's what I'm doing, unpaid work for these journalists, finding sources that they can't be asked to find themselves. (laughs) And even when you do that, it's still feeding the same sensationalist, voyeuristic root problems within the industry. And so I think that experience was really what made me think we've got to make our own platform and we've got to set our own editorial rules. (laughs) What are the editorial rules you have set? (laughs) Lived experience first and lived experience as expertise not just as case studies. <laughs> and also, I guess the the aim, you know, perhaps is not an editorial standard as such, but I guess always sort of doing an interview with the aim that this is going to promote empathy in the mm. news. This is going to promote empathy in the story. This is going to allow people to be able to put themselves in the shoes of people that maybe they wouldn't have thought about had they read headlines that were, for example thousands of migrants swarming our country you know that doesn't allow you to to think about what is it like for somebody to get in a boat and risk their life to to flee something what are they fleeing why would somebody make a decision to do that what about that person's families you know those kind of headlines don't allow you to they don't give you the space to be able to think like that a big one is balance or what we call false balance. This applies to all topics, not just migration, right? Oh, we think that news should be objective or impartial. And we think that impartiality means having someone who agrees and having someone who disagrees. But that's not impartiality because often when you have a refugee or let's take a different example you have someone with gender dysphoria a trans person and then you have someone who has absolutely no experience or doesn't know anyone who has ever experienced gender dysphoria but just hates the idea opinions and experiences are different things right yeah they're given equal weight in the debate even though they don't have equal stakes in that debate so that's not impartiality and i remember having this debate when i was training to be a journalist in our class and the teacher you know asked people to put their hand up if they believed that journalists could be objective and some of the class put their hand up and then they asked us to put our hand up if we didn't think that it was possible for a journalist to be objective and those of us who put our hands up were actually 
And those of them who put their hands up believing gems could be, could be objective fitted a very clear demographic pattern. They were all privileged, white, straight men. And they were not able to see the relevance of that to their answer. But the perspective they had and the perspective they had of all forms of identity related reporting was that the impartial view is the white straight male view and everyone else is imposing their subjective marginalized lens on reality and this is what we're fighting against so yeah so balance we have a very different definition of in media storms editorial guidelines do you have a definition of do you even attempt balance because i think balance is bullshit but (laughs) i think we see ourselves as correcting a lack of balance in the mainstream and so yeah we're we're, we may be seen to weigh down more on one side Mm. i mean what is the side it's the side of lived experience which can take many views on the spectrum yeah Yeah, untold stories but really when the seesaw is already so wonky we're just doing our bit to even it out i think it's also just demonstrating to people that you can report on a story let's say about climate change where you don't also have to platform a climate denier (laughs) like i think a climate change denier like i i I think it's just demonstrating that to people so even the basis of it you know people get a little confused about because news is done in just one way so often yeah like balance to us for example with abortion would be interviewing people who have had to make choices to do with abortion based on their own bodies also interviewing medical professionals policy experts it's not just going out of our way to find some random person who objects with absolutely no level of professional medical personal expertise and that that's such a good example actually because i remember doing that episode and we made sure to you know do our research and what we found out is that nine out of ten people in the uk are pro-choice they are pro-abortion or however you want to describe it but i think they described it as pro-choice um And that's not really reflected when we see abortion coverage because they feel the need to find that one out of 10 person who is anti-abortion and then put them up with equal weight. But how is that balance? That isn't balance. It makes it seem like it's 50-50. Exactly. So balance is bullshit. (laughs) You don't do balance. You try and amplify voices that are overlooked. Is that fair? Mm -hmm. I'm curious about in in the deciding to do this, what that journey was like because you still we still we all still very shared values and approaches and we all exist within the larger ecosystem right and at least in my experience I find a lot of people around our age who like agree with us and are willing to rally but also the power brokers are just like oh you want to change everything well that's interesting I made it work in the system or you know we like what was that journey like if when you decided like at the core to be disruptors (laughs) I feel as though, correct me if I'm wrong, it was scarier for Helena for a few reasons. Firstly, I was already out of the mainstream. I'd been freelancing for a while and had the opportunity to pitch a podcast to The Guilty Feminist, which if anyone doesn't know is this big activist feminist podcast. And as well as that, I was raised by parents who didn't do the expected path Mm -hmm. they both 
did their own thing, quite eccentric, and really always encouraged me and my siblings to do the same and said that they would support us in that and had a place, you know, they live in mm. London and made it easy. It, the financial risk there wasn't so much because I could live with them if everything went south. So yeah. this opportunity when it came up from the Guilty Feminist was a no-brainer for me. And I really wanted to do it with Helena, but I knew Helena was working in a really secure job, a really sought-after job within the mainstream media. So I put together a list of other potential co-hosts that maybe I could pitch with. And then sort of on a whim, I, I called Helena just to check in and see how she was doing. <laughs> and also to be like, well, you know, what would you do if I told you that there was an opportunity and I asked you to jump ship and come on board with me? And I said, it's funny you should call today because I've literally quit this morning. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Talk about timing. Yeah, it felt very like universe yeah. supportive. It was, um, yeah, it was a real, it was a real moment. But yeah, I had quit without anything lined up I had I quit to go freelance basically um which is something that I thought I would be able to do but is extremely difficult um it also takes a lot from your own personal like energy resources to be freelance because you have to be the person pitching your ideas constantly and many you know nine out of ten will probably get rejected and then when you get the pitch you actually have to write it and you know it it, or or film it or whatever it is so yeah it's, it's obviously very difficult being freelance but I was ready to do it because I knew I didn't want to be where I was um but yeah like Matilda said I mean again my parents have always been extremely supportive of me and um you know still have that sort of layer of privilege that Matilda talked about about you know growing up in London and being in the hub of things and that just can't be overlooked in our situation I don't think at all um I think it's just difficult. It's 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 different, and it was it it was and is more difficult because you know they are they are Asian parents like that that is what they are you know yeah. and and also um not a lot of people in my family have done something that is um not scientific or not mm. uh, it based yeah. or you know medical for example yeah. so it's difficult taking. Um, a different path from yeah. from what is the norm um from what is known you know i think my nan is still trying to get me to become a teacher i'm like that ship sailed okay we're done <laughs> <laughs> i get lawyer all the time I yeah, get yeah. <laughs> and even like even the beyond your families like looking at the industry looking at friends looking at peers like it's it's hard it's hard work and hustle even when you have the backing right of something like the guilty feminist where you're going out there and you're like all right we're doing this thing and like sliding into people's inboxes reaching out to people trying to build something which at its core is disruptive is i have found at least is like it's it's really rewarding when you find the like-minded folks but it's also you're going to come up against a lot of friction because you're you're questioning what everyone is doing. And if they're paying attention, they're going to realize that immediately. Oh, we we hit so many obstacles and that there'd be no illusion. The hustle continues. And I think the hustle may just be an innate part forever of doing this. And when we say we've done it with backing, we've done it with the minimum 
level of backing with which you can do this. When we started with The Guilty Feminist, they gave us a small sort of freelance fee to produce this. We wanted to make it a lot more than just what they initially were looking for in terms of the level of research and journalism and reporting we wanted to do. And so we were juggling what could have been a full-time job in itself with other part-time work. And every season since then, well, we've been, we fought to get funding from external sources so we can go full-time and we've managed to do that, but we need to do that more. It's constant. And then it's, it's not just the fact that you're, doing something independent and you need to sustain yourself it's like you say it's inherently disruptive and that means that the resistance you meet just from moving Mm -hmm. is greater than all the rest of your competitors who are going with the grain so whether that's trying to get any press promotion when you are criticizing the press whether that is trying to get sponsors for content that isn't commercially that suitable because you're talking about abortion and human rights violations. And we do try to keep it as accessible and fun and funny as possible because if you're in these situations as our guests are, you are still a human being with a sense of humor and you still need to laugh every day and you can see the humor in your situation and you can make jokes about it that the rest of the media can't because they're not including your voice. So... We've even been told by uh, by the commercial branch of Acast, which is the podcast platform we're on, that, oh, Helena and I, we're a dream sale for advertisers because we're, you know, young, hot hosts, obviously. <laughs> but, yeah, obviously. But that just doesn't mean... But because of the content we're dealing with, it has been really difficult to see any immediate route. Yeah that we can just walk down. We have had to hack our way through the jungle every step Mm. we've gone. (laughs) Mm. And even as you were saying, friction from, you know, people, like not necessarily people in the industry, I think there's been huge amounts of positivity, I think especially on our episode about sex work and about Mm. sex workers that centred sex worker voices. We had some people who you know, had probably grown up very anti-sex work their entire life, tell us that their opinions had changed and that they'd never seen it in that way. And that is amazing and and, and so, so great. And like hearing that feedback is like, yes, like this is why, this is why we're doing it. But also we've come across so much stuff that has been just quite difficult to deal with, you yeah. know, we did an episode on fat phobia and then yesterday we saw a one-star review of somebody who was just basically just being really fat phobic in who was like really angry at that specific episode that like fat people should get medical care like how dare they and he got like so angry they gave us a one-star review and as far as saying we're laughing about it but it's also frustrating because it's it's hard because we're like we're saying we're trying to reach those people we're trying to reach those people with empathy and with an open conversation and you do get people just shutting, shutting, shutting the book. I mean, our episode on policing oh my with God, those comments. The comments. Yeah, the comments can be quite rough. <laughs> we did this We did this investigation recently. It's sort of just wrapped because yeah. we did a three-week deep dive. And it was into racially discriminatory recruitment from the police. And we sourced freedom of information data from, 
you know, 43 police forces, we made the most comprehensive data set that exists to demonstrate that contrary to popular belief, ethnic minorities are now actually more likely than white people to apply for the police. They are not the reason the police isn't representative. They are being rejected at radically discriminatory rates. So when our first episode on this came out, we were presenting the data and Mm. presenting those findings. And the overwhelming theme with the comments was, yeah, but who says that's racist? Maybe they're just not as good. You know, maybe the minorities just aren't as good as the white applicants. So then we were like, fine, fine. We're going to ask that question. We're going to look at why. We we really try to engage with... There's a... I think there's two types of trolls. You know, there's the trolls that come to you with all their reading and data that contradicts yeah. everything that you're saying. And they have a level of rationality that maybe I'm always going to believe you can take on and mm-hmm. change one person's mind. And then you have the trolls that are just bigot, bigots and haters and probably in 90% of the time bots. And you need to learn to sift those ones out of your mm. line of vision because mm. that's not doing anyone any mm. good. Yeah. I mean, we literally addressed to their questions in an entire episode. So, you know, they said, oh, well, is it actually racism? So we literally did an episode about, is it actually racism? Could it be other things? And then the comments were just like, yeah, but is it actually racism? I was like, well, you didn't listen. You didn't listen. That episode, mate. (laughs) Listen to the episode. (laughs) It's like, fine, I'm not going to address your comments anymore. (laughs) Is that your approach to like the trolls? Because they obviously do exist and you're both young women on the internet and the trolls are going to come for you because that's that's what it is to be a woman on the internet Mm -hmm. um and it's it's hard right like everyone has their own strategy some people are just like i'm gonna go offline like i'm done my mental health my sanity some people it sounds like you guys do that we're going to report it out and just respond like what is how do you stay how do you stay okay i think tilda likes responding a lot more than i do i'm not a big responder um but also I'm on social media a lot more than Tilda is. <laughs> I, 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 I uh, have a very limited engagement with social media anyway, so I guess I have a natural defense. I've also, you know, grown up with, a, surrounded by a lot of people who take a different ideological view, I suppose. And I've always enjoyed having those debates at, when you know that, people are listening to each other. Mm-hmm. So I can find anyone who's going to listen and who I can listen to as well. I think it's really important to know why, the what is motivating the criticism and the backlash. Mm-hmm. I do think that's really important. So if you can find someone who's going to listen and who you can listen to, I will always try to engage. But I have also come across the most hysterically obstinate forms of trolling. I... Before MediaStorm, many years ago, I started this blog with two of my cousins and we called it People Who Do Things. And the idea was you can write about anything pissing you off as long as you tell people what they can do Mm. to help. And we had this troll uh, who would do a fake People Who Do Things account. God, they were creative. But instead of it being People Who Do Things, they would do like People Who Poo. And then they would go through old Facebook photos of me or my cousins and in any where we're sitting down they'd be like here's me pooing in my granny's living room <laughs> and then they would do people who eat that and so the, the description was like oh it's so it the description would be like we're a restaurant chain but 
You have to show visas on entry. Only black and brown nations will be allowed into our restaurant. No Australian visas allowed. And yeah, and the and I pickle. What was so hilarious was our blog was just a tiny little blog with like a few hundred followers. And I was like, this is almost a full time job that this person thinks their revolution is ridiculing with the basis level of humor. These like three, you know, girls doing their little corner of the internet. That's so bizarre. It is mental, actually, what, what motivates these trials. Maybe you need to get some of them on this show <laughs> and ask, what drives you? Because I would love to know. <laughs> See, you're curious, whereas I'm like, I don't need to engage. Yeah. It's like... I don't know if you're like me, Helena. I feel I, I, I see both sides of it. Dude. Maybe yeah. I'm somewhere in the middle of you two. That's how I see it. But like, I think they're there are some people that are worth engaging where you can see they're Mm. asking a very relevant question and there are some people where it's just not worth engaging i mean i saw um i saw gina martin the Mm. activist recently who'd been on one of our episodes talking about gender-based violence she recently posted an instagram that said you know you don't have to uh, argue with men on the internet about sexual violence. Their opinion does not take away from your lived experience yeah. and what you know to be true. And that I find I found very important. I, I, you know, when you just come across a post and you're like, yeah. God, I needed that post today. Yeah. You know, I really needed that post that day. It was when the Russell Brand allegations yeah. had broken and there was a lot of crap on the internet that day. Um, so when it's like that, when it's somebody being obstinate, when it's somebody yeah. wanting attention for saying something yeah. horrendous, there is just no point uh, in engaging. Um, when it's somebody who is asking for conversation, I think it's incredibly important to yeah. give them that conversation. But it's really difficult. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not very good at it. I think. Like I'm not. I'm not great at at staying calm in situations where I feel really passionately about something. Um, it, it, it's a tricky situation. I think we deal a lot of with a lot of that stuff through humour. Like we just have like some of the biggest laughs about that stuff. Yeah. Like it, that is definitely our way of coping with that. It feels like the only way is to laugh at the absurdity because otherwise you just lose your mind, right? It's we're also not. I think we're not built to like deal with the amount of engagement that we all have to especially in the types of jobs that we have where we are very online or not so online but the trolls find us and they want to engage with us and it's like how much like how much are you supposed to engage with other people and like how much of your life is supposed to be spent trying to convince someone right because because if you didn't have twitter you wouldn't know what like rob from essex thinks about russell brand like you wouldn't care and you wouldn't you wouldn't even know <laughs> you probably know like the 10 people you saw that week and they would tell you what they thought mm-hmm. and you would disagree with maybe five of them and and that would be the extent of it where it just feels like it's it's so much and it's mm-hmm. also hard at least for me to to be conscious of like one that we have our echo chambers right so like burst, bursting that bubble and making sure we're listening outside of it but doing it in a way that feels safe so we're not just listening to the other side and I'm air quoting the other side because sometimes there isn't another side and it's just listening to people who might hate you or your humanity and it's like do we really need that yeah probably not and I think far more important than engaging with trolls for all the reasons you just said a you know they're often representing a very radical 
perspective is engaging with people who disagree with you in real life. Mm. Like you said as well, today we are exposed to engagement that is historically unprecedented and isn't even necessary. But in our everyday lives, we are exposed to people who don't always agree with us. And I would always prioritize saving your emotional energy Mm. for those conversations than for (laughs) the dark wars being fought on X, mm. as I hate to call it now. Oh, X. You're the first person like I've X, ever heard like say a, X and yeah. actually mean it. Insert, insert alt-right social media here. Oh, hang on. <laughs> X is its own. <laughs> so if you had to like think back to younger Helena and Matilda who are, or the, the younger versions of you who are either like trying, you know, 18, 19, figuring out what their space is in the world or they're like 25 and in that newsroom and are, or in a job where their voice isn't as valued or they don't see themselves represented and they're not sure what to do, whether where, where they make the difference from, where they fit in. What's the, what's the thing? Not that there has to be one thing, but like for me, that's so clearly the little revolutions in your lives. And I'm curious about what, what you would advise to younger youths to do. Oh, younger me had, a, I think, a very different idea of what her revolution would look like. To me, I thought that feminism meant being successful in spheres where men are successful. I thought that feminism meant I needed to go into law or finance and just be better than the men doing that and be really ambitious in the traditional sense of the word to not be distracted by men. I think even patriotism was part of my idea of principle. Mm -hmm. So different now, you know, I am incredibly feminist and just as determined to fight the revolutions that I can, but those are totally different. I very quickly decided that success to me had nothing to do with traditional ideas of ambition or success. I very quickly decided that love, both romantic love, but love of friends and love was a huge part and work-life balance and love work balance was a huge part of what I wanted to aspire to so I would have maybe removed myself from the quite small-minded the small world in which I defined revolution and success and and um expose myself to the many, many different ways that people live their life successfully. But I did that quite quickly leaving school. I think I I wanted to run (laughs) and Mm. I broke out of the world in which I was in and very quickly saw how illusion, illusionary, illusory, illusory those values were or those ideals were. And how would you now define, you? there are three definitions you threw in there, Um, success, feminism, and revolution and how would you define those three now success for me is to do with winning the british podcast award no, <laughs> it's very <more>, non-traditional <laughs> today is more to do with 
inward reflection than outward reflection. I think growing up, I thought success was something you looked at externally, the expectations people had of you, Mm. the value society placed on certain positions. And it's more about discovering inwardly what I, A, am really good at and B, am going to deliver my best work in because I really enjoy it. And um, yeah, working to the highest, discovering what my highest... Um, value can be and and delivering that value um and feminism to me oh that's a good question feminism to me is still a real work in progress I think working out that definition because I have a very privileged privileged position within the population of women and intersectionality is something that I am learning more and more about every day but I think definitely it's less self-representative and more representative of a wider Mm. population of women than than I thought of feminism meaning when I was younger and revolution I think again when I was younger I had very grandiose ideas about what revolution looked like and about finding huge sweeping solutions and working towards monumental sort of change whereas revolution to me today lies much more in the small acts of kindness or the small conversations in which maybe you change someone's mind or or maybe you change your own mind by listening I think that the way I fight feelings of cynicism or helplessness is to set small achievable goals about Mm. what I can achieve within my sphere of influence and within myself and my own flawed personality. And so to me, a revolution is, is much less yet grandiose and much smaller, but I think it's that the butterfly effect, looking Mm. at the butterfly effect that you can have in the world and starting to change your tiny corner of it and hoping that bigger change comes from there. It's really beautiful and very hopeful. <laughs> what about you, Helena? Talking to younger you. Younger me, I would say your gut is never wrong. Like, mm. it's never, never wrong. You know yourself better than anybody knows you, no matter what anybody tells you. Anybody who's ever said to me, I know you better than you know yourself. No, you, no, you don't. Um, yeah, your gut is never wrong. Your gut instinct about a job, a person, um, what to have for lunch, like it's never wrong. Mm. So I would have definitely told myself to have lunch, yeah. No, I would have definitely told myself to trust myself more, um, trust my own brain more, mm. Um which was definitely hard when, you know, a lot of the time I felt like my brain was attacking me. Like I've had a long, long road of struggle with mental health and, and the, the, yeah, a long time. Like I just, I thought, and when you were talking about success, I was thinking what success is to me, what I t- was told it was, was always to do with money and how much money you were making. Yeah. Um, and Again, obviously, I think it, it's, it's you know, taking money out of, not completely out of an equation, but out of an equation a bit is a very 
privileged stance. You have to be very privileged to be yeah. able to do that. Um, so it's not saying that success isn't about how, what you do or how much money you're making, but genuinely like success to me now is like, if I have a, a day which is happy and not sad mm-hmm. because, and I have many, many, many of those days now, which is great, yeah. but it's like, it's like, there's no, what's the point of anything if you, if you're not, if you're not, yeah. not even enjoying it, but just, if you're just not comfortable in it, if, yeah, that's what's having a successful day is a day where, you know, not that you're not sad because you will feel sad at, at points, but having a day where you're not like under a dark cloud, yeah. you know, that, that's really what, what success is. And I do think a lot of that comes back to, knowing yourself and trusting yourself and trusting your gut instinct and you you can do that from that's not really about growing up you can do that from a child yeah. i think it's important to teach children to trust their own instincts and yeah trust their trust their gut because that would have helped a lot it's also such a journey right yeah it's also really beautiful where both of you have touched on like the small things and like very much the idea of how we spend our days is how we live our lives right it's not it's not in the grand sweeping anything it's just in how we do the doing definitely yeah I think oh so much we there's been a huge movement in our generation I think oh you know mindfulness and this is great people reflecting and looking for meaning and being critical of the choices I think this is also important but I do think it's possible to overdo that or to forget that there is meaning in doing Mm -hmm. and you can reflect and reflect and reflect but it is in the small reality that you will find purpose we will always find purpose in the little things we're doing I feel like often people who get stuck in the thinking it's also not knowing what the like perfect next step is right because there's you see like the infinite possibilities or the finite many possibilities in front of you and there's just no way to know how everything will play out and yeah. it's like I would also definitely say to people who you know a lot of my life growing up was like your GCSEs then your A-levels mm. then your university then a job then like and, and and then you get married have loads of babies and you're just like oh my god I don't like I don't know what like I just get rid of that concept of of one path get rid of that like just kick that in the ass out the door because that just is just not real it's not real it doesn't suit everybody everybody is all everybody is so different that might suit one person so well and they may you know in whatever way they define success have a great life with with that route but that's not going to suit everybody it's not real and that is one of the most comforting thoughts in the world Mm. it's like it's like, I think, looking up at the stars and thinking about how small, how small you are. You are my yeah. cousin, well, my cousin's always said that is to her the most terrifying thing in the world. She's like, ah, what do I mean? I find that the most comforting feeling in the world. And it's the same when you realise how small and irrelevant our single-minded view of what life should look like is. As soon as you're exposed to other cultures, other backgrounds, other ideals, and all the ways people live their life, it's like, huh, well, you know... If that doesn't work, what else is, what's next? <laughs> it's holding both, right? It's the, the like, you don't know how you're, we're all small, but also we're not so powerless. It's, it's both things. I was just saying, it's, it's interesting holding both the, like, 
what we do is not it's not irrelevant, but you know there will be other parts, and everyone is valid. But also, we're not powerless. Where it's the flip side of that of like, oh, we're so tiny, we can't do anything. And we often hear about that from our community, where it's mostly young people, young women who want to change the world or want a better world. Whether they are the ones like out on the front lines of doing the changing, but they're definitely doing the living. And it's you have power even in just how you live your life, right? Yeah. It's enough. There's that saying, isn't it, where you can. You can help if you help one person, you can change the whole world for that person. So realizing our smallness comes with power because it comes with setting yourself with starting with a realistic idea of the influence that you have. And that's achievable. That is something that you can do. You know, I think I also would have would have told myself not to um not to take things so seriously, not to take life so seriously. Um, I think it's quite fun because we do such a serious job, you know, in a way that, and we, we, we tackle and talk about such serious things. Um, but I think we have managed to have so much fun whilst doing it and so much lightness in it. And, and that's something I think I've only learnt to be able to do quite recently yesterday. You can do it so well yesterday. I was going to say yesterday was so funny. She came to me in hysterical laughter. I was, I was crying with laughs basically because we, again, like we, the way that, you know, we edit and we go through everything with a fine tooth comb and we upload our episodes. And we did this episode with the actress Nazanin Boniardi. It was an amazing episode about women in crisis zones and how they're disproportionately affected. And, Nazanin says this amazing point as she's talking about social media and how the uh, Iranian government have used cyber army tactics to silence people. And she says, you know, well, they will try, but I will not be silenced. And then Matilda says, wow, Nazanin, that was amazing. What we actually uploaded was Nazanin saying, they will try, but I will not be silenced. 15 seconds of silence. And then Matilda saying, wow, Nazanin, that was amazing. Yeah, I came up, she was laughing I so was... much. And I was like, oh God, something really funny's happened. And you were like, we made a really big mistake. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it's the ability to laugh at those mistakes and not freak. I mean, I think the, the ironicness of 15 seconds of silence after I will not be silenced just killed me. But I think like, but I think the ability to be like, oh, well, let's upload the episode fresh rather than taking that so seriously and, and worrying about every every single mistake and worrying about how many people listened to the 15 seconds of silence and thought, are they making a weird editorial judgment here? Or are they like trying to show that the silence, I don't know. Um, but yeah, just yeah, just not, not taking things so seriously, I guess. Yeah, the small stuff doesn't really, mm. it matters, but it yeah. You can get through it. Once it happens, all you can do is fix it. Yep. You know, you can't cry over it. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I could talk to you guys forever. But is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't? What secrets of Helena's can I, can I can reveal? I, <laughs> I think that was a really nice, really nice conversation. Yeah, no, I don't think so. I thought it was very cathartic. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for being here and for doing this. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much for listening and thank you to Helena and Matilda for a wonderful conversation. To learn more about MediaStorm, the work they do, and listen to their podcast, check out our show notes.